We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 this morning, verse 11 through 15. Acts chapter 3, verse 11 through 15. You can turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles right there. And it says this, Acts chapter 3. And while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy One and the Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. What I want to title this message is, But God, the author of life. The author of life. Will you pray with me for a minute? Lord Jesus, we honor you and we love you. This whole thing is for you and it's about you. Lord, if you are not glorified in any other place, be glorified in this place. And Lord, if you were not glorified in any other heart, be glorified in this heart. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. 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 But God, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. You see, we've been in a series for the past month, speaking and looking at the places in scripture where we find a but God. This whole series is surrounded with the idea and the thought, maybe even the question of what happens when God intervenes. How many of us know that God has been intervening in the course of history since the beginning? And now we're taking a look at specific places in the scriptures where God has inserted himself into the course of humanity and then caused his will to come forth. That we had done something, but God intervened. We took a look at Ephesians That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that we have been saved. Pastor AJ has preached amazing messages. One of them is all things, that when God says all things, he means all things. That what man meant for evil, but God meant it for good. Today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 3, where it's post-resurrection, And in the book of Acts, what we find is that it's surrounded with God's power, infused with it. From the beginning until the end, we find the power of the Spirit working 
in the early church and in the apostles. The power is seen in every single place in the book of Acts. We find it in the ascension of Jesus as soon as the book starts. We find it in uh, Pentecost as soon as the Holy Spirit falls the power of God. We find it in the establishment of the church in Peter's preaching to 3,000 and them getting saved. In a man in this chapter, chapter 3, who has been lame his whole life. He couldn't walk. And he's sitting at this gate called the beautiful gate and Peter and John are with him. Peter and John are walking along and they're about to go into the temple. And as they're going into the temple, um, they encounter this man. And he's praying and, and asking for alms for people to help him out. Peter and John look at him and Peter gives one of the coolest lines in all of scripture. You know it, say it with me. He says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. The man, his legs are strengthened. Peter takes him by the hand. He gets up. This man starts jumping and praising God, holding on to Peter, won't let him go. He runs into the temple and everybody then looks around and they're like, wait, wait, who is this? Is this the same guy who has been lame since birth? Is this the guy who who begs for alms at at the beautiful gate? Everyone's confused and astonished. They actually start praising Peter and John, saying, who are you guys? Are you guys God? Is, this is incredible. And, and Peter's looking around, and he sees that this is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And all of a sudden, Peter's second sermon ever comes about. First sermon, we find him preaching, and 3,000 people get saved. And now, it comes to this point where Peter preaches. Now, the interesting part about this part of Acts is that Solomon's portico, or Solomon's colonnade, was a part of the temple. And the last time we saw Jesus at Solomon's portico, or colonnade, it was this porch outside of the temple. The last time we saw Jesus there was in John chapter 10. And Jesus had just healed a man born blind, and now everybody was looking at him and saying, man, if you're really the Messiah, just tell us already. Like, you keep doing all, and as, as if these miracles weren't speaking for themselves. And they're saying, if you're really the guy, just say it. And Jesus is saying, I've been telling you, you just won't listen. And he preaches and says, I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one who healed this man born blind. And the next time we see Solomon's portico, Solomon's colonnade, is Peter and John now coming, not with a man born blind, but a man born lame. They come and they heal the man. But the issue is that even though that man born blind was gone, Peter and John were still sitting amongst a multitude of Jews who were still blind. They still couldn't see. Yeah, you healed this guy, but who are you? What's going on here? Oh my, are you guys God? And they start almost to worship them. And these men and women, these Jews were still blind. Peter and John take an opportunity after the miracle to preach the gospel because how many of us know that the miracle is not the miracle, the salvation is the miracle. This man had, new, had better legs, but the crowd still needed a new heart. The crowd was sitting and they saw the miracle. They saw that this man was now better. He, one is, he was once in one condition and now he's in another condition. But now Peter and John said, hold on, Now we have to figure out that this miracle isn't just so that this man can tell a cool story. This should give birth to belief. A miracle is not finished until it gives birth to belief. 
How do we know that? Because Jesus said it this way. Jesus said, I do signs and wonders so that they might believe. That's the point. Not so that people have a cool story. Not so that people think you're amazing and anointed and gifted and filled with the Holy Ghost. And so that people might be saved. Peter knew that. So Peter starts preaching his second sermon ever. And as he preaches his second sermon ever, he goes straight to basics. He goes to the ground floor. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. He focused on the main thing, made the main thing the main thing. And he took this as an opportunity to testify about the power of God. This man had better legs, but you need a new heart. Sometimes I think our biggest issue is that we settle for better when God wants to give good. New. We settle for better when God wants to give new. Our life has gotten a little bit better since we came to church. I, I, I have new, new uh, morals. I have, I have better morals. I have, I have better habits. My family got a little bit better. Drama stopped happening. Maybe I feel a little bit better. And all of those things are great. And I'm really happy that we've experienced those things. But oftentimes, I believe that we settle for far too little when God wants to give us so much more. I'm happy your family is better. I'm happy the drama is better. I'm happy that your habits are better. But I believe and know that Jesus wants to give you new, not just better. He wants to give you a new heart, not a better heart. He wants to give you a new life, not a better life. He wants to give you new motivations, not better motivations. He wants to give you a new identity, not a better identity. God is a God of new. He wants to give you new. And we come to church and some of us have experienced a better life. And I would tell you just very plainly and lovingly, God's not done with better. He wants to take you all the way through to new. Peter was new. Peter was absolutely new. Peter had an incredible transformation while the whole time he was walking with Jesus. And especially after Jesus' ascension, he's been given the Holy Spirit. And if you look in this scripture, it says that Peter actually approached the Jews once a crowd started to form, knowing that this man's legs had been made better. Now, it's interesting because if you look, we're in Acts chapter 3. You don't have to go too far back to get to the crucifixion. And once you go back, you realize one of the last times we saw Peter is that Peter was not approaching Jews about Jesus. He was actually avoiding Jews because of Jesus. He wasn't approaching. He was avoiding. There's a little girl who said, aren't you that guy who's with Jesus? And he ran away. There's a point where Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And and Peter said, I would never do that. And then guess what? He denied him three times. There's a point where Jesus had been crucified and now they didn't know what to do and he locked himself in a room because he was so scared of what the Jews might do to him. Peter wasn't approaching people about Jesus. He was avoiding people because of Jesus. And all of a sudden, we find Peter the next time that he is in a crowd surrounded by Jews. He's not avoiding anymore. He's now approaching them. Hmm. 
Peter was made new. And some of us know what it's like to avoid rather than approach. There are many things in our life we know we ought to take head on, but we would rather avoid them because we feel, it's not true, but we feel like this is actually going to be the thing that I need to do. We avoid instead of approach. We avoid by making sure that nobody gets close to us, even though the person that hurt us, that made us feel this way, isn't even in the situation anymore, but now I can't even let people get close to me because of what they used to do to me. We avoid. We avoid really simply by not being generous with our money, even though we know full well that God gave us the ability to get the money and to have the job and have the talent and lead the team and lead the organization, but we still are avoiding the thing that God actually wants us to approach. We're avoiding. We still avoid in ways where we subdue our situations with substances because we're not really ready to face the truth. And all of a sudden we realize that I know what I ought to do, but I'd rather avoid it because it makes me feel better. We avoid. We don't approach, we avoid. And, and, and Peter starts to approach the Jews. And, and if you're like me, you wonder what happened at the end of the Gospels to the beginning of Acts that changed Peter. It can't be time. Time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Time makes things more stinky and dirtier and you get more bitter and you just let things rot and you start to think that you're right and you start to make a narrative in your mind that because they didn't do it, you're justified in what you get to do to them even though you haven't. Time doesn't make anything better. Time didn't make Peter better. The difference between Peter at the end of the Gospels and Peter at the beginning of Acts was a move of power by the Holy Spirit. The thing that changed Peter was a but God. Because Peter was one thing, but God intervened into Peter's life and now he was not just a better Peter, he was a new Peter. He was somebody who used to be fearful and now approached things that used to terrify him. He was a person who used to run away from situations, but now he was courageously going into situations. Peter was not just better. Peter was now new. <laughs> gospel doesn't just make you better. The gospel makes you new. And sometimes we don't know how new we are until we're back in old situations. You know what I mean? You think about how you would have reacted back then to what's happening now, and you realize God is working on me. I, I would have cussed you out. I would have grabbed the bottle. I would have hooked up. I would have texted them at three in the morning. I would have cut them out of my life. I would have not forgiven them. Are we serious? I would have not forgiven them. I would have held bitterness. Sometimes you don't know how new you are until you're back in your old situation. I was... Um, at a wedding a few years ago, and uh, it was a wedding from one of my best friends, and it was like in the beginning, middle of COVID. And as it was going on, um, we were part of the groomsmen party, and so we all had to get matching suits, and suits look great. And so the wedding was amazing, it was fantastic. But the issue of the wedding is because it was a COVID wedding, so I had my little COVID-15 on me, if you know what I mean. You know what I mean? Like the COVID-15 pounds that you, we all got when we were just making bread, watching Hamilton, and ordering Amazon Prime way too much. That weight is what was here. 
And so I had my COVID-15 and I got the suit for my COVID-15. And I felt great in the suit when I was in the suit. That wedding was great, super fun. I went to a different wedding a few months ago for my other friend. And as I was looking for what I was going to wear to that wedding, I looked around in my closet and I saw that suit. And I said, oh, man, this can be a great suit to wear. So I grabbed the suit, I take it off, and, um, and I put the suit on. And I realized it starts to fit a little different because I was fit. And so I started to like, it started to fit a little. I had to throw it out there. I had to tell you. You guys didn't clap, so I had to tell you why. I started working out. So the suit started to fit a little different. And I was like, okay. But the suit, here's the thing. The suit looked horrible on me, but I felt great in it because it was so loose. And so I'm sitting at this wedding and I'm like, man, like I, I lost all this weight that I used to have. And, 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 I, and this suit, it's all baggy and all the wrong areas. And, and I didn't really like, like the way that I looked, but I loved the way that I felt. And I realized that sometimes you don't know how new you are until you're back in your old suit. You realize, man, I remember what I was back then. I remember what I would have done. I remember the type of character that I used to have or the character that I didn't have. I remember my life back then. And now that I'm in a new situation, not just a better situation, I realize that the gospel isn't trying to make me better. The gospel's trying to make me new. The next time that Peter was in that situation, he wasn't better. He was new. The gospel makes us new. And now Peter is realizing that the thing that separated the old Peter from the new Peter wasn't time, it wasn't morals, it wasn't habits, it wasn't rules. It was a but God moment. Now Peter was new. Peter was new. So he preaches this sermon. You killed the author of life. Man, Peter's just hitting us. You killed the author of life. And this title, author of life, is not just an interesting title for Jesus. It is a descriptive truth about Jesus. So whenever you see a title given to Jesus, it's not just so that we have a different name to call him. It actually exposes a different part of his character. The bread of life, the son of man, the vine, the good shepherd, the great I am, the holy one, the way, the truth, the life. These aren't just interesting titles. They are descriptive truths telling us a little bit more about who Jesus is. And if he is the author of life, that means he is the beginning, the middle, the end of life. He gets to decide how life goes. He is the author. He understands it from beginning to end. He knows everything. He is also the author and the perfecter of our faith, that it starts with him and it ends with him. It's found its perfection in him. Did you know that you can't even follow Jesus without Jesus? That he perfects his good work in you? You can't even do it by yourself? And so if he's the author of life, we realize that he is the creator, he's the inventor, he's the initiator, he's the cultivator, he's the sustainer, he's the protector, he's the multiplier, he is the author of life. 
And when we realize that this is a descriptive truth about who he is and not just a cool title about what he does, we realize he has the character of life, which means wherever he goes, life goes. Wherever he goes, life follows. Jesus, the author of life. And you might be in this room and say, that's, that's great, preacher. I'm really happy that you mentioned that. But my life doesn't look like life is following me. Like if I look back, it looks like there's a lot of death around me. Just things are not popping up with life like you're preaching like they should if I follow Jesus. And one of our greatest temptations is that when the story doesn't go how we think that it should go. We don't turn the page, we take the pen. We realize my life doesn't look like what I think it should look like. And instead of submitting to the will of the Lord, I start to take my life into my own hands. Jesus, you're not doing a really good job at writing this part of my story. This isn't what I planned for it to look like. I think that I could write a better story than you can. And so how about you give me control, at least for this chapter, at least for this season, at least for this moment, and let me write the story for my own life. And instead of turning the page in the book that God is writing for you, you take the pen and you start to write your own story. And make your own will. And you say, well, no, I submitted my life to God, but now I want this specific part back. I'm now the captain of my own ship again. We take the pen instead of turning the page. If you have not seen life follow you wherever you go, like I'm preaching, or like you see the author of life presenting... Don't take the pen. Trust the Father. Turn the page. Keep on trusting. Keep on following. Because if life goes wherever he goes, and you are with him, and you don't have life, the book's just not done yet. So if you're really discouraged... And you're saying, you teach life, and my life looks like death. Spoiler alert, life is coming. Jesus is still working. The author of life is faithful to his name. And where he goes, life follows. And so I'm not going to take control of my own life because I'm so scared. And I'm going to try and bail water out of the boat like the disciples were when he told me that I'm going to the other side. I'm going to grab a pillow. I'm going to turn the page and say, this part of the story doesn't look good. But let me just turn the page. Let me just wait for the next chapter. Let me keep on trusting Jesus. And how about I get in the boat with him instead of trying to fix the problem for myself. Don't take the pen, turn the page. He's the author of life. The author of life. Things might seem dead and gone, but God is the author of life. I might have been a lame man from birth begging at a gate for as long as I can remember, but he is the author of life. 
Peter might have said, I might have experienced the most unfaithful part of my journey with Christ and that I denied him three times, but God is the author of life. You might be in this room saying, my dream didn't come true, but God is the author of life. You might be saying, my heart is still broken, but God is the author of life. You might say, my life is beyond repair, but God is the author of life. I don't know exactly what you're going through, but I'm here to tell you today that he is still the author of life. He was the author of life. He will continue to be the author of life. And this is a descriptive truth about who he is. It's the author of life. And where he goes, life follows. Jesus, everywhere that he went, Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, the man with leprosy, every issue that he ran into, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the sinners, everything that he did was not just about making you better. It was about giving you a new life. These stories are not about, hey, I want you to change your morals, be a better person, do something different. He's saying, I want to give you a new life. He's the author of life. I sit in our worship and I'm like, man, that's my God. And you know what we did in response to the author of life coming to us? We killed him. He came to us. He healed us. He forgave us. He redeemed us. He restored us. He lived among us. He walked with us. He wept with us. He died for us. We killed him. See, the Roman crucifixion is what they used to nail Jesus to a cross. And we find here that in the story that Peter is preaching, they <laughs> realized that Pilate was the governing authority who needed to give okay to crucify this man named Jesus, who was alleged the king of the Jews. The Jews didn't like that. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes didn't like that. They thought that he was being blasphemous. They didn't think that he was the Messiah. So what did they do? They offered him up. They took him. They beat him. They made fun of him. They scoffed at him. They gave him to Pilate and said, you deal with him. And there's this horrible irony in Acts 13, Acts 3 mentions that says, you were offered up a murderer in Barabbas, an insurrectionist, a thug, a criminal, a crook, a murderer, and you were offered up Jesus. And there was a tradition that Pilate and Rome had to release one of the prisoners on this certain day. And the angry mob screamed at Pilate, and he says, who do you want me to release? Jesus, the king of the Jews, the author of life, or Barabbas the criminal and the taker of life. They said, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Pilate says that he disagreed and he didn't want to do it, but he was overcome by the mob. He says, I wash my hands of this. I'll give you Barabbas to go free and we'll crucify Jesus. The horrible, horrible sin committed. And it wasn't just the Jews that did it. It wasn't just 
Rome that did it because Rome wouldn't have done it if the Jews hadn't asked for it and made him do it. And the Jews couldn't have done it if Rome didn't crucify him and allow them to do it. They were both co-conspirers in the act of putting Jesus on that cross. But here's the thing. Jesus here, and what Peter is saying, is he says, you disowned him. You crucified him. You left him. You gave him to Pilate. You wanted a murderer. And some of us are sitting in this room. It's like, man, that stinks. Why would they do that? And that's just a wrong theology because Rome didn't put Jesus on a cross. Rome didn't kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the mob, Pilate, they didn't kill Jesus. You did. I did. I killed Jesus. To say that Rome killed Jesus is to believe that we could kill the author of life. And to misunderstand that the thing that put Jesus on the cross wasn't a man, a crowd, a ruler, or a regime. It was sin. Sin is what put Jesus on the cross. Not Rome. Your sin. My sin. Jesus died for every sin, past, present, and future on the cross. Sin put Jesus on the cross, not Rome. And Peter's preaching to this crowd saying, you killed the author of life because of what you did. You see, this is an incredible story because sin put Jesus on that cross. But the thing that kept him on that cross was love. He thought that you were so loved and had a heart for you that he said yes I am going to die for the sins of the world and I'm going to let Rome crucify me listen Jesus was not tragically murdered in John chapter 10 Jesus says no one takes my life I lay it down of my own accord so do not be mistaken no one murdered Jesus Jesus sacrificed himself And as he did that, sin is the thing that placed him there, but love is the thing that kept him there. Because he found you so valuable and so loved that he said, I would give my life for them. Isaiah 43 says it this way. It's actually just a prophecy about the truth of what Jesus did. He says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, And I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. And listen to this, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. The sinless one loved you so much that he thought that you were to die for. Did you know that God finds you precious? And loved and beautiful. And he says, I would rather die for them so that they can have life through me. Rome didn't put Jesus on that cross. I did. You did. 
Our sin is the thing that placed Jesus on that cross. And he says, I love you, the holy one and the righteous one. You see, in the new church, in our church, what we find is that we are really, really fascinated and obsessed with the cross, which is good. The cross is beautiful and it shows Jesus' love for you. But if the cross shows Jesus' love for you, then the resurrection shows his power. The cross will testify about Jesus' love and the resurrection will testify about Jesus' power. The early church, you know what they really focused on? Is that Jesus was resurrected. That there is a power in Jesus. Not just that he loves you so much, but that he has all power and all authority. And they were obsessed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he was raised from the dead. And the early church loved the crucifixion, but they loved even more the resurrection. Because it testified about a different power and a different love that Jesus has for us. This is not a weak religion of a tragic man who died for people that he really, really liked. This is a story of the God of the universe and the author of life overcoming Satan, hell, sin, and the grave. And if we just focus on the cross, just focus on the tragedy that was Good Friday, and we don't set our eyes to the beauty that is Easter Sunday, we're missing it. Because we are not a church that just looks at the bloody cross. We're a church that stares at the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb is the thing that testifies about the power of God. That he's telling us through that action. That I have overcome death. And I am the champion No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And what happens is that if Jesus rose from the dead, everything that he said is true. Paul actually teaches, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christians above every other people are the ones to be pitied the most. We should be embarrassed that we're gathering here today because he's just a man. If Jesus didn't rise, he's no different than any one of us. Jesus was crucified on that day. But God raised him from the dead. And now we are not to be pitied. Now we are not embarrassed. Now our faith isn't in vain. And it testifies about the truth that he wasn't just a man, but that he was the author of life. And now we sit in this place and we say, man, I realize that you are way more powerful and way more big and way more righteous than I could ever, ever imagine. It shows his power. And the thing that we're really good at, I'm about to close, the thing we're really, really good at is that we love to make things about us, even in the scriptures. We try to make everything about us. And listen, Jesus died for you, but he didn't just die for you. Jesus died to testify about the glory of the Father. And when we realize that Jesus' death was more than about just me, 
we start to get a glimpse about the true meaning of the gospel and that it's not about just you. It's about him. And if we could focus our eyes on him, if we could take our eyes off of ourselves for one minute, for the next five minutes, if we could say, man, I'm not in this building because I'm good. I'm not even in this building because what Jesus did for me. I'm in this building because he is God. He's the author of life and he is righteous. I'm not going to look at myself. I'm going to look at him. I'm going to stare at him. I'm going to be obsessed with him because he's the powerful one. I realized that death couldn't hold him. And now I'm going to testify about that truth. I'm in this room not just to feel good, but to praise the name of Jesus, that he still is the Lion of Judah, and he is the Rose of Sharon. I realize that he is the Lamb that was slain, and he is the Holy One. I realize that all things were made by him, for him, through him, and in him all things are held together. I realize that he is the one who can sacrifice for my sins. I realize that he is still the way. He is still the truth. He is still the life. I realize that he's still seated at the right hand of the Father. And if he never did another thing for me, he would still be worthy. I realize that he's still holy and he'll never not be holy. I realize that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I realize that even if I don't do it, somebody else will. I realize that the angels can't even look at him because he's so holy. And so they fall to their face and they say, I can't even behold the worthiness of God. I realize he's the one who can open the scroll. I realize he's the one who is the beginning, the middle, in the end, he is the great I am. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Lamb that was slain. He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. He is to be glorified. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of David. He is the Root of Jesse. He is the Special One. He is still beautiful. He is still holy. And I realize that it's not about me. And if he never did another thing for me, he's still God. And I'm going to give him all of my praise. And I'm going to sit in this room and I'm not going to let a rock cry out. And I'm not going to let another person's praise distract me. I'm going to realize he's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And if he never did another thing for me, he would still be God. Ephesians says it this way. Chapter 1 is the last thing. We're going to worship. Don't lose that spirit. We're going to worship. Ephesians chapter 1, 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to his working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body in the fullness of him who fills all and all. Listen, God is glorious all in himself. And he's worthy of it. And he is holy. And I don't need him to do something for me anymore. I've grown out of the need that God has to do something for me to praise him. I've realized that he's holy and he's different and I'm not. And my response is that he is undefeated. He is undefeatable. He is the champion. He is, death couldn't hold him. It stood no chance against the author of life. 
And my response is worship. And I say, I'm not going to look at myself. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to stare at you. I'm going to behold you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to glorify you. And I want you to leave this room thinking not of yourself, but thinking about how big he is. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. And for you I raised to life again. And you have no deserve all the glory. The holy, 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 holy. Holy, if you think I've said it a lot, the angels have been doing this since the beginning. Holy, holy, 
holy. That's who you are, Jesus. You are worshiped in this place, Lord. I'm asking in our hearts, God, would you be lifted up? Would you be made bigger? Would you be glorified and worshiped? Everything, God, we sell everything for you. We give everything for you. You are the author of life. You are the author of life.